This is the latest. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Latest. It's Tom here and today I'm joined by another special guest. How would I describe you, Anne Widdicombe? You are a very unique person. You've had a very eventful life from start to now. Would you agree? I've certainly had a very eventful life, yes. I don't know whether I'm a unique person. We're all unique, of course. Every every individual is unique. Uh, but I've certainly had a, a, a very good life, yes. MP and... Now, I, I would say TV star, star of Strictly Come Dancing, of course. But um, it all started rather differently for you, didn't it? You grew up kind of all over the place. In- uh, I did grow up all over the place, literally, rather than metaphorically. Uh, <laughs> I was being, uh, I was growing up in an admiralty family. So we moved around with the Navy every two to three years. Uh, and therefore, one day I'd be living in a house that I'd been in for that long, having friends that I'd known for that long. Uh, going to a particular school, belonging to the local brownie pack. And the very next day, no phase transition, very next day, I'd be in a different part of the country or on my way to a different part of the globe, uh, preparing to get used to a new house, a new school, a new brownie pack, and to make friends again from scratch. And I think the subconscious lesson of that childhood, I didn't realise at the time, but its subconscious lesson was when something's gone, it's gone. And that is why in 2010, I understood seemingly before anybody else did, that the day and the hour that Parliament was dissolved was the same day and hour I ceased to be an MP. And I was then free to do all manner of things that I would never have done as an MP. (laughs) We'll come back to those. But was that destabilising for you then? Because when you say you're living all over the place, we're not talking in the country, we're talking Singapore. Yes, I spent three years in Singapore. Uh, my brother was born in Gibraltar. That was before my birth. He was born in Gibraltar. Uh, so um, like uh, an awful lot uh, of, of families at that time, because Britain was still running an empire, um, an awful lot of families were posted overseas and, and children got used to it. Now, when you started senior school, the reaction of parents uh, who could do so at that stage was to make their children bored because there was no other way of guaranteeing stability. Uh, but I went to five schools before I was 11. Five. Wow. <laughs> wow. You you said before it was just, it was a life of service. It was something you got on with. Do you think people would be able to do that these days? Or do you think times have changed a lot? Oh, I think times have changed enormously. I mean, you think of the uproar that there was. And I'm not now talking about people with relatives in care homes. That was different. But you think of the uproar there was about people complaining, well, they couldn't see their grandchildren. Um, you know, they had to do it all by Zoom. Good heavens above. In, you know, when we were out in Singapore, there were no international telephone calls over that sort of distance. Um, there was certainly no uh, Zoom or anything like that. And the only way you kept in touch was by letter, which took three weeks to come out by sea and would take about a week to come out by airmail. Uh, and uh, it, it was completely different. And, and therefore, if, if one of your family was still in England, uh, as happened with us, you didn't see them for three years, you know, but now and the intolerance of suggesting, you know, that you couldn't see your grandchildren or it was a disaster if you had to wave to them through a window or something. We're, we're very different. We're very different. We've got different expectations. Yeah, I think, yeah, they're polar opposites, aren't they, really? So you moved back to Britain and you ended up at a convent school. Yes. How did that shape who you are in terms of your politics, in terms of your values, was that quite a big influence? 
I think it was. I was growing up in an Anglican family and I went to a Roman Catholic convent. And one thing that did teach me uh, was when you're in a minority, as I was as a non-Catholic, um, and particularly amongst the borders, I was I was in quite a small minority as a non-Catholic. Um, then uh, I learned how to stand up for what I believed um, in the teeth of a majority who believed something quite different at a time when those things mattered. I mean, nowadays you, you would say, well, it didn't matter at all. But in those days, there was actually a, a huge divide between Protestantism and Catholicism. Difficult now to conjure up for a generation that wouldn't know that at all unless you lived in Northern Ireland. Uh, but if that was how it was. So I learned to stand up for myself. I think that was a, a game, like, you know, moving around. It was a subconscious lesson that I didn't take on board at the time. But I think it stood me in very good stead in, in later life. Yeah. I didn't please. I, I stood up for what I believed. Yeah. Would you say that was the same when you went to Oxford? Because you went to Birmingham University first. Yes. Then tried again to go to Oxford. And yes. then you're obviously a woman in quite a male dominated world of student politics and that kind of thing. Was that another example of something that really toughened you up, I guess, or certainly made you stand your ground? I never regarded myself as as a woman anything. I didn't regard myself as a woman MP when I got in. I didn't regard myself as a woman candidate. Uh, and I think in Oxford, um, I mean, yes, I could see the advantages of being a woman at that time because uh, both the Oxford Union and the Cambridge Union had elected their first woman presidents and, and there was that sort of movement towards uh, women's rights. So it was actually an advantage to be a woman at the time. But I always took the line, look, I'm a candidate, look, I'm an MP, look, I'm an officer of the union, whatever it was, uh, not a woman such and yeah. such. Do you, I see that because else you probably wouldn't have been able to get on in the same way. But do you think other people saw you differently? Do you think other people may have treated you differently or at least attempted to before they before they knew what you were like? Uh, really, only other people can answer that. Um, I found, for example, when I got into Parliament in 87, I didn't have any problem at all because I was a woman. But on the selection round, which I'd been on since 1977, on the selection round, it was a bit different, particularly in the earlier years where... It was still something of a phenomenon to be a, a woman MP. I mean, and even when we then had a woman leader of the opposition, uh, you know, who was going on to be woman prime minister, we didn't know that at the time, woman leader of the opposition, even then it was still regarded as somewhat odd. I was frequently asked, did I intend to marry? <laughs> yeah. Frequently, it's... because then they would have thought, well, this MP will marry and then she'll have children, you know, and she'll have split loyalties. And Yeah. Yeah. Did... Did that annoy you? Was that something that really got to you or did you just kind of let it go over your head? In those days, um, it was an irritation, but nothing more. I mean, when I graduated, when I was at the stage uh, you're at now, it was still perfectly lawful, totally lawful, for an employer to advertise a job with two rates of pay underneath, one for men and one for women. That was oh. lawful. Uh, and it was lawful to refuse a woman finance without her husband's signature on the HP agreement or whatever it was. Uh, so what I think we don't appreciate now, we don't realise how far we've come, is that um, when I was in my 20s, uh, the whole issue of should women be treated equally meant just that. It wasn't sort of some esoteric thing about, well, you know, do you compare the jobs of somebody at the checkout till with the, the chap in the storehouse? It wasn't that. It was 
very straightforwardly that you started from an equal basis. And our cry in the 70s was, you give us equality and we'll show you we're as good as, if not in some cases, better than the men. Mm-hmm. Now, what feminism is all about is, oh, you know, we want special treatment. We want all women shortlist. You know, we want extra days off for uh, things to do with womanhood. All this sort of stuff. It's different, completely different. Yeah. Like you say, you were kind of going from a different standpoint there. Were you always quite an ambitious person then? You seem it from a young age. Yes, always ambitious. I always wanted to come first. I didn't always come first, but I always wanted to. Um, I, uh, I was ambitious, so I couldn't have told you which direction my ambition was taking until I was in my, uh, my mid-teens. Um, so perhaps the word is competitive. I was always competitive. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to be all sorts of things. Um, you know, when Yuri Gagarin went into space, I thought it'd be a great thing to go into space. My father said, yes, you have to be rocket <laughs> physics than you are, my dear. Uh, and that was quite true. I was no good at science. <laughs> so it would have been absolute nonsense to have gone into space. But those were the sorts of ideas I had until it all calmed down. Uh, and then in my mid to late teens, I knew very well that I wanted to be a politician and that stuck. So how did you get get to that then? Because you're obviously quite a conscientious person. You obviously thought about current issues a lot, but you're also a writer. You wrote a full length no- novel, aged eighteen. I don't think many I people did. can say that. Oh, I didn't get it published. I, I didn't try to get it published uh, because I had the good sense to realise that it, it probably, you know, however good all my well wishes thought it was, that it probably wasn't quite to, to that standard. And I was absolutely right to think that. Um, but yes, I, I did write in my spare time, uh, and uh, largely, I think, because I wasn't much good at anything else, in, sort of off the academic scale. I wasn't any good at art at all. To this day, I cannot draw a straight line. I, well, I can with a ruler and a pencil, uh, <laughs> and sometimes not even then. Uh, and uh, I cannot draw, I can't sing. I, I'm tone deaf, as Anton Dubeck would tell you, absolutely tone deaf. Um, I didn't and and I wasn't particularly sporty although I enjoyed swimming Uh, so I really I think writing which was something I enjoyed I concentrated on because uh, it was the one thing that I could enjoy in my spare time that I actually was good at. Mm. So you were elected in 1987 after trying to stand for election several times before that how did it feel to finally get to parliament and what did you want to achieve once you arrived? Uh, it was an absolutely marvellous feeling. I mean, in those days, there were no such things as fast tracks for women and, and A-lists and all that stuff. Uh, and I had gone on the round 10 years earlier in 77. I'd fought a very strong Labour seat in Burnley in 79. Then I'd fought David Owen um, in Devonport in uh, 83. Uh, so when I finally got there in 87, you know, it felt like the end of a very long journey as well as the beginning of another one. Uh, so uh, it was a wonderful feeling, a feeling of achievement, feeling of hope. Um, I had a safe seat, so I knew that unless I messed things up completely, I could rely on, a, a, you know, being in Parliament. Because a lot of people can't; they've got marginal seats, uh, and that the future was stable from that point of view. So it was a wonderful feeling. Um, what did I want to do? In fact, I can remember when when I first went in. I went in and I just sat on the green benches because I'd always said all my life, all through all the candidate selections, I'd done about 100 interviews, 
Uh, and uh, I'd always said all my life, I'll believe I'm there when I can feel the green leather underneath me. So about two days after I'd actually got in, I went into the chamber, totally empty, of course, we hadn't started sitting. I went into the chamber and I sat down on a green bench and sort of had a small bounce around and thought the leather <laughs> is actually here. And while I was doing that, a fellow MP who'd just been elected from Kent came in, Jake Arnold, and he too sat down and he said, it does feel good, doesn't it? And it was a sort of that moment of realisation. Uh, and then uh, what did I want to do? I was very much part of Maggie Thatcher's um, programme uh, and what she was trying to achieve. And I wanted to do all of that. Um, but I think the thing about going into Parliament is you often think you're going to do one thing. For example, I thought I would specialise in defence because, I mean, I'm an admiralty daughter. I'd fought Devonport. I produced um, a, a little booklet on defence. I'd always specialised in defence and in, in sort of life outside Parliament. But I didn't. I didn't specialise in defence at all. I specialised in health. So you, know, it, it, you just have to take the opportunities as they come. Yeah, I think that's the thing about politics, isn't it? And I think it's fair to say you probably did. One thing I've noticed about your parliamentary career and since, to be honest, is that you've never been afraid to kind of get stuck in or do something that others wouldn't or even put yourself out there. I mean, everything from your time as prisons minister to the trip you made to Morocco to yes. free one of your constituents. Tell yes. us about that. Yes, uh, people very often when they ask me, you know, what was my greatest achievement in Parliament? They expect me to say something connected with the front bench, you know, either some piece of legislation or, or, or something like that or some policy that I didn't produce from the opposition. And yes, those things were probably more important, but nevertheless, the thing that really stands out for me is that moment when I got one of my constituents out of jail in Morocco, by which I mean I got him released. I didn't spring him from jail in Morocco. <laughs> but I, I exhausted everything. By the time his wife came to see me, to tell me, he had been convicted, he'd been sentenced, he'd lost his appeal, and he was facing nine years in a Moroccan jail for a crime that nobody believed he'd committed. Uh, and uh, I thought there'd be nothing I could do about it. I mean, intervening in the, not only in the justice system, which you can't do, but in somebody else's country, which you certainly can't do. Uh, and I thought, I can't do anything, but I'm going to try every last thing, really, for the sake of a wife, so that she would know that I tried every last thing. And after several failed attempts, I went out to Morocco and I saw the justice minister, the interior minister, the king's councillor, anybody else I thought might help. Uh, and to cut a very long story short, the time did come. I think about eight months into that nine year sentence when I was able to phone up his wife and say, John's out, he's with the ambassador, he'll be home in 48 hours. And her reaction when she finally took in what I was saying Tell me why it was that I'd become an MP. And I think the sad thing, Tom, is this, in all parties and on both sides of the House of Commons, um, most MPs can point to those sorts of moments when because they were what they were and did what they did, however hopeless it might have seemed, they didn't make a drop of difference to the nation. They didn't make a trickle of difference to their constituency, but they made a tidal wave of difference to an individual family. And the sad thing is that most people think we're sleazy, lazy and in it for ourselves. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. People don't necessarily see those good things that you do because they don't have that mass impact. It doesn't mean that they don't have 
And in fact, if it was your family, then imagine how you would feel. Yeah. Um, and the other day I got a letter from somebody right out of the blue, uh, going back to some help I'd given that person in 1992 or something like that, um, which I'd clean forgotten. You know, if yeah. it was a native person, it would have meant nothing to me because it was one of you know many hundreds of things that I had to do. But that person's never forgotten the fact that not only did I try to help them, but I actually succeeded. Yeah. What what drove you to go above and beyond like that? Because you've not mentioned the fact that when you went to Morocco, you paid for the flights, you paid for everything. And obviously it takes a lot of time just for one constituent. What made you go above and beyond like that? Because I don't think many MPs would. First of all, congratulations. You've done your homework extremely well. You've obviously <laughs> got a, a very good future lined up as a radio presenter. You really have done it very well. Uh, yes, it's quite true. I did pay for it because there was no um, there was no head under which I could claim it. Uh, and it had a, a rather funny consequence because naturally, as I was paying for this myself, I went by the cheapest possible route out to Morocco. And when I arrived, they were all, the, the people who were meeting me, were all gathered in the VIP lounge. And there was me getting off steerage. <laughs> and um, they missed um, So, uh, but why did I do it? I did it um, because I because I could help an individual. And that's what I was there for. I mean, that's, yeah. that's one of the things an MP is there for. Yeah. As an MP, and since you've been really quite outspoken, I would say, the reason that you're often on the media is because you're never short of a view. Has that got you into trouble before? Do you see yourself as controversial? I don't see myself as controversial because I don't see somebody um, explaining the view that they hold as being controversial. I think that's just part of free speech and it's got to be a very, very extreme view before uh, you know you say, well, that's controversial. Um, so I, I never think of myself in that light, but I'm always referred to as the controversial MP or the controversial former MP. So, OK, um, my brother was the same. He was always referred to as the controversial vicar. Um, and my parents used to say, oh, the controversial children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just looking at some of the stuff you've said and people listening to this will be, I don't know if shock's the right word, but they'll certainly be like, wow, that's that's quite a strong view. So just a couple of examples. You talked about Brexit being like slaves turning against their owners. Um, you called the Me Too movement trivial whinging. Yep. I mean, those are out of context, I know. But when you say those things, do you think I'm going to get in trouble or people, people aren't going to like that? Or do you just not care? No, I was actually quite taken aback by the uproar over slavery. No, I stood very firm by everything I said. Um, because what I'd said was, you know, history is full of examples of people turning on their oppressors. And I didn't just quote slaves, I quoted the peasants' revolt, for example. Uh, colonies are fighting for independence against empires. Um, all those sorts of things I mentioned. And en route, I also mentioned slavery and said slaves turning against their masters. Now, that could have been any slavery. It could have been the Spartacus revolt. It could have there been- There is a difference though, isn't there? Because ultimately, Brexit, whatever you think of it, hasn't, nobody's died. Whereas with something like slavery, they have. Do you do you see that? Do you see why people might get angry about that? No, I don't, because you could say peasants' revolt, nobody's died. Nobody minded that I talked about peasants' revolt. Um, yeah. Well, actually, peasants' revolt, people did die, so that's that, That's a bad example. But um, what uh, I was, was simply saying was people don't like being oppressed. They don't like being uh, ruled oppressively. 
Uh, and that's what we felt the EU had become. It had begun off as a perfectly voluntary um, economic union. And as I said in my leaving speech, if it had stayed that way, we wouldn't have been leaving. You know, we wouldn't have been leaving. But we got to the point where we weren't free to make our own rules. And I know that for a solid fact, because I spent seven years as a government minister having to cope with the fact that we couldn't do what we liked because we belonged to the EU. So, I, I no, I don't regret that at all. But as I say, it could have been any slave revolt I was talking about. It could have been the Spartacus revolt, because uh, I'm a classicist. Uh, I'm uh, a Christian. I could have been talking about Moses revolting against the pharaohs. Everybody decided that what I was really talking about was the British Empire, and I wasn't. You know, and that to me is just a nonsense. So I got angry. Me yeah. and me too. I mean, I've always said and stick to, you know, in the most serious of cases, it is a good thing uh, that people can feel supported. But an awful lot of it wasn't serious. And we had all that nonsense about Testminster, uh, in which it was. Is that nonsense? Yes, so much of what has been produced isn't serious. Now, some is and should be dealt with as such, and should be dealt with on a criminal basis. But is it really, really worth getting in a tis as one cabinet minister? I mean, cabinet minister did, because another cabinet minister, 15 years, one five years earlier, had told her a slightly off colour joke. Was that really worth it? And I remember that on the day that all this was breaking, I was addressing a, a literary festival, um, in Petworth. And as the uh, um, sound man was putting the mic on me, he fumbled. And I said, do be careful, because in 15 years time, I shall meet to you. And <laughs> I just fell apart laughing. Uh, that's... Yeah, I think the only thing I would say to that is that different people have different interpretations of the seriousness of things. But let's move on. And I just wanted to have you ever thought, when you're saying these things, you obviously speak a lot in public you know what kind of things annoy people have you ever thought i'm just not going to say that just to make my life easier i've certainly been very tempted that way very tempted i mean that's a deceptive question because uh, an awful lot of people do censor they self-censor what they say in public but i think that is bad because i do believe in free speech now with freedom comes responsibility and i think you've got to be very careful how you say things but that shouldn't prevent you actually saying them. Uh, and so on the whole, I mean, if you ask me, have I ever self-censored? Um, I, I think the truthful answer is I can't remember, but I don't tend to self-censor, let's put it that way. I have gone through periods when I've said, when something's been so badly distorted, I've said, no, I won't be silenced on that, but I will only do it in writing because what I write cannot be disputed. Whereas what I say can always be open to you know, yeah. um, uh, manipulation with inverted commas, you know, and often is. Yeah, I understand that. I think that's, yeah, especially in, in this day and age, if you like, every word you say is yeah. going to be interpreted. Uh, one of your big drivers, I sense at least, is your faith. Yeah. Ha with religion in decline in this country, I suppose, do you mm -hmm. feel that you could have achieved what you've achieved now, being quite a deeply religious person? If you were starting today? If I was starting today, it would be more difficult, but it's certainly not impossible. You know, we have got people of, of deep faith uh, in politics still uh, and at, at fairly senior levels. Um, and uh, I, but it would certainly be more difficult for the simple reason now that people regard God as embarrassing. You know, you don't mention him. 
when uh, Hansard asked me to choose a, a speech for a, a, a gathering, a, a volume that they were producing of, of great speeches, and they asked me to select one, I actually selected one made by Enoch Powell on embryology for one reason only. The reason I selected was he actually mentioned God. Uh, and it is very, very difficult now, you know, and probably since the 50s, uh, to find God actually openly mentioned. So, um, yeah, uh, the short answer to your question is it would be tougher now. Mm. Do you think that's a sad thing? Yes, I think it's a very sad thing. Um, first of all, in a purely secular sense, because of the free speech argument. Uh, but secondly, I think it's sad because um, faith and trust in God has informed so many decisions that you should be able to say that that, that is what, um, what informs your decisions. And when I um, was standing for Maidstone in 1987, the first time I was going to get in, um, I produced a leaflet that gave all my views on the free vote issues, you know, where you're not responding to whips. Everything from capital punishment all the way through to hunting, through abortion, all the rest of it. And I gave my views on all of these things, very succinctly, one sentence per issue. And my agent said, you can't do that. You will have offended everybody in Maidstone because you know <laughs> people are going to disagree with you on something. And I said, no, I want people to know what they're voting for. And at least they can never say they didn't know what they were voting for. My majority went up. Yeah. Do you think that's where you stand out from other people? Because I don't think many other people would be so bold as to do that. Well, I think, you know, people do whatever else they may say about me, and sometimes it's deeply rude, but whatever else they may say about me, they do usually concede that what they see is what they say. <laughs> that, is, that is certainly true, I think. Let's talk about Strictly then, because oh, yeah. <laughs> after, you after you retired as an MP in 2010, you agreed to do Strictly. Am I right in saying that you wouldn't do it five times. No one in your office when you were an MP said you should do it. You didn't think you'd do it. You should do it. But as soon as you retired, it was pretty much the first thing you did. Why well, again, is that? Again, congratulations on the research. Um, yes, it's it's quite true. Um, they came to me every single year. The celebrity version started in 2004. And from 2004 until 2009, they came to me. And every year I said, go away. Just go away. I'm not doing it. But then uh, in 2010, I was retiring um, and something else had happened. I'd seen John Sargent doing it. And I thought, oh, you don't have to be able to dance. You can actually do <laughs> being able to dance. Uh, but then also in 2010, of course, I retired. I didn't any longer owe anybody any duty of time or dignity. It would have been impossible to do it while I was an MP. Um, but it suddenly became possible. And I think my attitude can be summed up in two words. Why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah. I thought it last three weeks. I wasn't expecting the sensation that followed. I thought I'd last three weeks. Um, but that, that sums it up. Why not? Mm, I've got a quote from your book here that made me laugh. <laughs> it seemed inappropriate for a serving MP to commit so much time and lose so much dignity. Do you think <laughs> that, that was, was that a limiting factor for you when you're an MP? You were like, I'm a serious politician. I don't think I can do this or any kind of more, you know, relaxed, fun TV work. Whereas after you retired, do you think you let a more fun side of yourself come out? Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, while I was an MP, I had to do what was appropriate. Um, and in those days, dignity actually mattered. <laughs> Oddly, it doesn't seem to matter so much now, but it did then. mattered quite a lot. <laughs> and, of course, there was time as well. I mean, the, the sheer time commitment of script, I mean, it's full time and no messing. 
so I knew that um, I, I couldn't have done that as an MP, but it's quite true that throughout my time as an MP, I did do some television programmes, I did make documentaries, but I was always asking myself, um, is this compatible? Uh, is this something that will upset my constituents? The biggest risk I took in all that time was Fit Club, which I did in 2002. Uh, and I got some flack for it, but times were a changing. And, um, you know, the idea that a, uh, somebody in Parliament couldn't also do other things on television, it was becoming, uh, to do that was becoming more acceptable. Hmm. You were a bit of a pioneer in terms of that, weren't you? You and then I think Nadine Dorries went on I'm a Celebrity, didn't she? But she did. um, yeah, just obviously now politicians are all over these kinds of shows all the time do yeah. you do you see yourself as a bit of a pioneer with that and do you think it's gone too far because some would argue that boris johnson as prime minister is a celebrity not a politician uh i certainly think i was a pioneer now i didn't think so at the time in hindsight it's a wonderful thing um but what convinces me that i did actually pioneer something is this that when i did strictly come dancing bear in mind i retired i wasn't a serving mp there were acres of press devoted to saying how undignified it was how humiliating it was how inappropriate it was a few years later ed balls did it and he was at a stage when he hadn't retired he lost his seat he hadn't retired um and uh didn't get any of that at all none of it so in that period, something had changed and, and I obviously started that change. Now, I don't necessarily say that's a major achievement in life, but I, I think it's a fact. Right? Yeah. And do you think that celebrity culture has gone too far in politics now? I think you've got to be very careful, as I said before, about what you mix with what. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's gone too far, but I think it's in danger of going too far now. Boris did most of his celebrity stuff before he was an MP, uh, and then he did some while uh, while an MP. Um, but I don't think that disqualifies him from being prime minister as long as he isn't doing it while he's prime minister. But some would say that he's taken that that culture, if you like, that attitude, that kind of blasé, fun, more fun attitude, and he's used that and taken that, you know, that, that kind of ability to push the line a little bit more than other people and he's taken that to being prime minister which well, I hope he has because we needed the line pushed I mean you look at his vaccination program now you know what we forget is that Boris simply stood there and said never mind the EU procurement program we're not doing that but he said something else as well he said I'm going to order vast quantities because we need them and even before they were approved never mind in production Boris was ordering huge quantities now that is the mark of a man who was prepared to take an enormous risk because if they hadn't been approved, all that money would have been wasted. You know, he would have been up before some select committee saying, how dare you waste all this mm. money and all the rest of it. He took that risk because he saw the size of what was coming. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. uh, and, you know, I... I we haven't, do, got, uh, we haven't got huge amounts of time left, but I would uh, I would say that for that, for that one gamble that paid off, there were obviously several others that haven't if you look at say Partygate or whatever so I think oh I don't think Partygate was a gamble I really don't I just don't think well, no but it's it that kind of that culture it goes back to that cultural thing again I don't think Boris ever consciously thought and I don't actually if, if any of them ever consciously thought let's break the rules 
I think what they didn't do was to think through what they were doing. That's what I think the problem was. You see, mm. I think if somebody said, hang on, Boris, could somebody call this a party? They'd have probably laughed. A serious that. politician would have thought that through that, you know, Gordon Brown would not have. Would Gordon not Brown have... would have partied anywhere. <laughs> That's sure. true. But, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, you know, there were plenty of serious politicians around. Yeah, they didn't see, they didn't see the danger coming, and nor it appears to Keir Starmer. Yeah, let's talk. Let's do a screeching handbrake turn to finish and talk about cats. Oh because yeah, you love. You're a big lover of cats, aren't you? I adore cats. Yes. You've even written poems about them. Am I, I right? Have. Yeah. Can, can you can you give us one? Because I, I find them very funny. If I can remember it now, uh, goodness gracious, what is that? Why, it's Pugwash, my black cat. Goodness gracious, are there others? Yes, indeed, my cat Carruthers. That is the highlight of the interview for me, I think. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I always remember watching you on um, Louis Theroux sit with your cats. And so what is it you love about them, cats? Well, they're furry, they're purry, they're independent. You know, you can go away for the weekend if you've got a cat, providing you, you, you leave adequate provision. Uh, you can go away. Uh, dogs, I find very clingy and dependent. <laughs> right. Final question. Uh, you've said before about your retirement that one of the great pleasures of it is that you have no idea what's going to happen next. That's true. I'm going to ask you now, though, what is going to happen next? I Idea. haven't a clue. Not a clue. And that is one of the joys of it. Do you consider yourself retired, given that since your retirement, you've been on Strictly, you've written a load of books, you've been an MEP and various other things, as well as your media work? Well, certainly being an MEP took me by surprise because I, I wasn't expecting to go back into politics at all. Frustration drove me there. Uh, but um, am I retired? I always say I'm semi-retired. Mm. OK, Anne Wedekum, thank you very much for joining us on The Latest. Thank you for having me.